Welcome back podcast listeners and it's 2023 here and we're up to episode 176. Tony, I got the year right. You did, take two. Take two. We got it right. (laughs) 2023. It's always hard, as I said, with January, you you stuff up that date and especially back at the old school days um, when I had to write the date out, I, I always stuffed it up coming through January. Or for me, just to show my age, when I used to have to write our checks in January and yeah, 20, 2023 would come up at 2022 quite often. Look, mate, we've got a few topics to get through today. Um, we're going to sort of discuss um, how Australia is interacting with China um, and some of your thoughts from last year, how the US economy looks at the moment leading into 2023, um, and also how the non-residential property market in Australia is looking, um, and, and also sort of private equity in that space. But I thought I'd start off with some good news at, at Kofkin Bond, um, and something we've been sort of sitting on, but... Uh, we're proud to announce that Matthew Rowe has joined us as chair of the advisory board. Um, you know, I know you have a long relationship with Matthew that you'll sort of talk about in a minute, but you know, Matthew has a 20 plus year track record as either a CEO or, or owner um, and has worked in ASX listed companies um, and private companies himself. He has a founder owner led approach to business and believes in acting in the be- uh, client's best interest and is also an interest um, of shareholders. His stated aim in business is to make a decent profit decently, and I know that you love that one. He's most recently served five years as the CEO of Count Plus, um, ASX is CUP, and during his tenure, um, the market capitalization of the company increased from 54 million to 143 million. Earnings per share increased by an average of 22% per annum, and he was led 22 acquisitions in the Count Financial from CBA. Um, it's a pretty impressive resume and, and a bit of personal sort of, I guess, things that he sat on. Um, he's actually influenced policy and reform a lot within our sector. Um, his contributions range from chair of the Financial Planning Association of Australia, an Australian representative to the Global Financial Planning Standards Board, a member of a expert advisory group, Finance Learning Standards, with the Australian Business Deans Council, and a ministerial appointed director of the Financial Advisors Standards and Ethics Authority, which is FASIA, which we've talked about. Matthew is also a graduate of the Harvard Business School and holds a GAICD designation, as well as a fellow of CAANZ, Fellow of CPA Australia, Life Member of the FPA and was named the 2021 Industry Leader by Cordata. It's an impressive resume and I guess that's why you've seeked to have him on board. It is. When we were looking at bringing on chair of our advisory board, Jamie, as, um, as you know, I've been very reluctant in the past. Yep. And because I had to bring on somebody who is not just bring, coming there for name but can come in with expertise. And Matthew and I have worked together for several years quite closely. Um, I've always admired him. I've always admired the work he's done at Counts and Count Plus and all the acquisitions. He knows our industry back to front, both the accounting and financial services side and financial planning side. And his resume speaks for itself. So having Matthew on board is wonderful for us as we drive forward uh, in 2023 with our, our continual rise and everything that we're actually doing. So having Matthew at the helm is, is wonderful for us. Yep. So we've, we've jumped back in earlier than other podcasters, Tony, because our clients want to hear sort of what's going on um, around us. Let's start with, I guess, the China relationship. Well, no, let's start with the most important thing. We've had our <laughs> usual AFL bet, Jamie, for the year. Uh, we just shook hands on that. So there would be, I, I would love to think one year I would actually be collecting some money off you, <laughs> but 
you know, our, our normal bet for those who don't know is that Essendon will win a grand final before Richmond. Yep. Uh, that Essendon will finish uh, above Richmond at the end of the final season, at the end of the finals. And uh, that I will beat Jamie in the uh, footy tipping competition. Yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, out of the last seven, eight years, it would, be, it would be nice to actually finally win some money off you. I, I am looking forward. I think this is the year, Jamie. This is the year for the Bombers. Look, I'm actually looking forward to you paying for my child's education for the years to come. <laughs> so let's, let's hope the trend continues. But in, in, in more serious stuff, um, let's talk. Pre-Christmas, um, you spoke about uh, how you sort of seen the relationships between China and Australia um, and how you've seen that progressing. Um, how are you sort of seeing the market at the moment? Well, it probably goes back even further that when you asked me who, uh, on a federal election which party, if they win, is actually better for our industry uh, moving forward. And I said one of the things is for our industry and for the economy as a whole, for us to be able to become friends again with China, we needed uh, we needed a change of government. So, and and you know it's you're always a bit worried if you know if you have a sort of preference towards one way, you might always be worried about that change of government. But I've said this openly before, you know, whether you uh, love or hate the AOP, you have to really give credit to Albanese. Um, and what he's done so far, and especially the first thing he did in regards to... Sorry, we'll just turn my phone off there, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, one of the uh, first things that happened, of course, is the Chinese government reached out to him and basically said, you know, let's be friends again, yep. uh, which he openly greeted with open arms and said, absolutely, now get rid of the tariffs. And that was actually a really bold move. Uh, and the reason why it was a really bold move is because we do know the Chinese, especially the government, uh, the Chinese government, you know, it's about saving face as well. So to actually publicly come out and do that or say that and not do it behind closed doors was actually quite a bold move. But what it also showed was that he is willing to work and as we move forward uh, as a nation, because at the end of the day, we are an economic powerhouse in this region because of our relationship with China and all the stuff that we dig out of the ground and grow on top of the ground. Yeah. Uh, they have a very large population and they need our stuff. And we will happily supply to them. And I did state that this would happen, you know, and by no means am I suggesting a war in Europe uh, with Russia invading Ukraine is a good thing. But for us economically, it has certainly helped uh, strengthen and push that relationship forward with China because they need our commodities again. Yep. And Australia, you know, besides the difference between Australia and Ukraine, realistically is uh, 20 million in population. They make all their money from the stuff they dig out of the ground, stuff they grow on top of the ground. Australia is very similar with a couple of exceptions, and that is that we do have uh, a IT or technology infrastructure businesses here, quite large ones, whereas Ukraine, you get a lot of developers from the Ukraine, but they don't necessarily have the big, large uh, infrastructure IT companies like we do. And we are, a, from a banking perspective, we are a bit of a powerhouse in the region uh, because our banks uh, run really well prudentially and regulations do run them uh, very well. So as a result of that, we are seen as a bit of a safe haven in the region as well when it comes to banking. So, and, and financial services on the back of that as well. We are, you know, decades ahead of a lot of our uh, neighbours. 
yeah. um, in the area too. So Australia on the back of that, you know, and I've said this before and I'll openly say it again, I do believe with volatility, because it always is, it doesn't go up in a straight line, but we will be on the verge of that sort of 10-year boom, again, like we saw in the mid-90s to the mid-2000s. Yeah. Heading over to our friends in the US, um, how, is, how are you seeing sort of the situation over there at the moment? Well, the US, uh, and, you know, I'll just talk economically because realistically, if you have a look at, you know, some parts of the US, it's it's troublesome to look at. You know, if you have a look at, say, for example, what's going on in Los Angeles and San Francisco at the moment, it's really quite troublesome. Yeah. And especially, you know, so there's a lot of social unrest over there. Um, and there has been for several years. Um, it was probably exacerbated with uh, with Trump coming into power because it really there was always the you know you, you had those people who voters like myself which are more centric and can actually look at somebody based on what policies they're sort of coming out with and you can actually say that yes you might vote a certain way but it doesn't mean because uh, my party say it that it's that I will agree with it. And that's, that's usually, and I would suggest that a lot of people are centric voters. So, but whereas what happened is when you had that polar, and it probably started prior, you know, it goes back as far as Bill Clinton in a way, uh, but really came out with George W. Bush, then Obama, um, and then uh, Trump, and now, of course, uh, with Biden. But what you've actually got is there seems to be, you know, from an outsider looking, uh, looking in, there just seems to be this, well, if my party or if my tribe say this, it must be true and I'm going to support it. And even, you know, you might be thinking deep down inside, well, that's not right. And that's what she, that's what happened really. You know, it was happening with Obama, but it really came out uh, with, uh, with Trump, uh, where it's a case of, well, if Trump says it, it's wrong. Uh, whereas Trump supporters, well, if Trump says it, it's right. And there was no sort of middle ground where some of the things he might have said were right or wrong, and it's the same with his current administration. But as a result of that, uh, the U.S. economy—I mean, and it was—it was obvious, seemed to be obvious to everyone except uh, global, not just uh, in the U.S., but governments in general, and reserve banks uh, or the Fed over in the U.S. You got to pump so much free money into the economy when interest rates are so low it's gonna cause a lot of havoc and a lot of grief, and that's what's happening now. And whereas the US is most likely going to go into a recession, we believe it'll probably be a soft recession. We don't believe it'll be a hard recession. But when you consider they pumped, I think it's something like 12 or 13 times more money into the economy during COVID than what they did during the GFC. And and as a result of that, you know, it, it's a case of, well, what do you expect? Yeah, inflation will run out of control, and that money has to be repaid. Inflation is running out of control. You've now got, I mean, we, we know about Elon Musk and Twitter as an example, where they had 3,000 employees and 5,000, or 2,000 employees, sorry, full-time employees and 5,000 contractors. He's basically said, you know, he believes uh, that within probably around about two years or so, Twitter might only need a couple hundred employees. So there's going to be this huge drain, uh, well, redundancies, not just sort of in your blue collar or lower income thresholds. You're going to find a lot of these people because now you've got Amazon are looking at doing the same. They just did a whole lot of layoffs, but they did it to actually their management. They didn't do it to their uh, ground staff. It was their management that a lot of huge amount. Goldman Sachs have now done it in the financial services. 
uh, JP Morgan are doing it, uh, you've got Credit Suisse that are doing it, and then you've got these large techs like Microsoft, Google, etc. saying, yeah, well, it's like, uh, do we need this 10% of our workforce? Let's lay them off. So there's a lot of people who are getting paid a lot of money to go in there and have coffees, go to the uh, breakout room and do yoga, eat donuts, play table tennis, then go home. And they're getting paid these huge incomes. And as a result of that, there's going to be a lot of people who are used to having that money who are all of a sudden are going to be losing jobs and those jobs will not be available with that money again. So when, when it comes to this soft recession in the US, as I said, it's not necessarily going to be the lower income thresholds that are going to suffer, but it's going to be that sort of larger income where they got used to it, not having to work and having that money and don't have any other skills. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things too, there's no other skill set for these. So that's going to cause uh, a lot of issues. But what you've got is you've got VC firms in the US now saying, we're not going into anything that is Series B or above in respect of money. Whereas previous first few years, they're throwing money. You know, Series B, Series C, have a look at Canva, $80 billion valuation. And I think that was a Series D uh, raise. And it's just like, you've got to be kidding me. It's something that's not making money or even one of Australia's favourite companies over there, um, Atlassian. Um, you know, $550 million loss last year. They're, they're basically using other people's money. And what a lot of these VC firms are doing nowadays are saying, no, we'll go seed, pre-seed, uh, Series A, uh, because we will back you as the founder, but we're not going anything over that. You, If, if you're going to just be a cash burn, we're not interested anymore. And they're not having their money just burnt to go and hire these you know, a developer who should be on maybe 110, 120,000. Oh, we have to pay 300,000 because that's what Google pays because Google getting rid of them as well. Yeah. So there's going to be that plethora out there. Private equity is different. Private equity, you're buying into an established company that's already profitable and you're helping with bolt-on grow and uh, cash flow to actually build that company substantially. So private equity is a far safer bet than VC. But the VC money, they're not just handing out checks anymore. Moving on, I guess that sort of leads into a conversation we we're going to have. Um, you sort of already touched on the VC side of things with the PE, but um, the Australian pop property market. So not talking residential, um, sort of talking, yeah, you know, I guess CBD sometimes. Yeah. Most of the time. Well, it's overvalued, considerably yeah. overvalued, and the industry super funds and large uh, unlisted uh, property groups have not revalued. And, you know, on a global scale, not just Australia, but, yeah. you know, Blackstone in a world of hurt where they'd uh, stop all redemptions on the largest uh, property uh, real estate investment trust in the world, uh, full of illiquid investments, but they're allowing new money and redemptions to go in from retail investors. And they've actually had to put a stop on that and had to get a inflow, I think it was $150 million from um, the California Pension Fund, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and the when you when you actually look at that is it's it's really quite simple is these properties that do have debt um, debt is going to have to be refinanced debt is higher and if you're looking at valuation say on an office building that has gone from being you know 90% to 95% fully ten tenanted down to you know around about 60% tenanted that can be several million dollars worth of rent that is not coming in and when the refinance is coming out at higher interest rates we're talking you know 100 to 150% higher than what those interest rates were previously and the rent is lower when you do an evaluation of these buildings it's quite simple isn't it multiple of rent and then what is the net result and if they're bleeding cash and this is what happened in the G after the GFC about a year after the GFC we had a massive, massive unlisted property cross, uh, crash. Uh, 
because they are going to have to go in and start re uh, putting revaluations on these properties. You can't say, yeah, our, our property f uh, portfolio is fine. Uh, we're still getting rent and we class it as 50% growth and 50% income. That's just rubbish. You know, it's the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. And I know our compliance team would absolutely throttle me if I was to say property is only classed as 50% growth, 50% defensive asset. It's not uh, liquid or illiquid. So when you got the REITs, the Real Estate Investment Trust have already come off by 25% in value, but the unlisted properties have not been revalued, that is huge. That's a huge problem. And the same is actually in VC, uh, uh, venture capital. So not private equity, uh, but a lot of these large superannuation funds, they own, they have billions upon bit, tens of billions, you know, probably combined, uh, you might be talking 10%, so about a hundred billion dollars invested in uh, VC money, venture capital globally, and they haven't revalued it. So whereas the managers have come out who have to do daily liquid events, who have come out and said, well, yeah, sorry, we've written down Canva, even you know, even Blackbird Ventures, who are a large VC fund here in Australia, they've written down their VC. So a lot of the industry super funds will use groups like Blackbird. They've written down their investment in Canva by around about 40 or 45%. The money they got in there is from the industry super funds, but the industry super funds haven't written down their investment in Blackbird Ventures for that. Uh, based on the fact that it's actually been written down. So is their unit price a true reflection of their underlying holdings is very questionable. And when you've had a, you know, first six months of last year, the market's dropping substantially and not doing revaluations on the illiquid assets, that can drive a real concern. So I am concerned about uh, the property market, the non-residential property market. I'm concerned about the residential property market and the ability, but I don't think Australia is going to have that uh, middle tier management recession like the US will have. Yep. So even though mortgages and household budgets are certainly becoming a hell of a lot tighter with inflation and grocery shopping and mortgages, especially if people are going off uh, interest only to principal and interest repayments and interest rates have gone from 2% to 6% or even if they were paying P&I it's gone from 2 to 6 That's quite substantial. But the uh, commercial uh, property sector uh, is a concern to me, and it's a concern to me because if it does affect unit prices on major superannuation funds, it could spook the market, but spook the market in all round, rather than, hold on, they mucked up, the economy is actually doing really well, people are keeping their jobs, it's just that we've got to work from home, you know, environment, or some of these large companies nowadays are saying, well, why are we spending $50 million a year on rent uh, when we can have, we can comfortably have, you know, 50% of our 10,000 workforce working from home? Yep. It's uh, cheaper for them to give them an extra 100 bucks a month to work from home in their internet connection than what it is to, you know, be paying all this money in rent. It's, you know, it's, it's not rocket science, Jamie. You know, <laughs> it's, even someone like me can work that one out. Two plus, two plus two has to equal four. Love it, Tony. Plenty on in 2023, and obviously our monthly updates around the economy will be coming out and we'll have further yep. discussions. But, mate, appreciate you joining us. Well, no, on. so just before you cut off, what I would like to say is my – I will say that the vast majority of my predictions of what would happen over the last six months of last year and going into this year have have come true in the economy. I said, yes, we were volatile and things like that. So I'm just really looking forward to my football predictions <laughs> to coming true this year as well for the first time ever in eight or nine years, Jamie. Love it. Thanks, Tony. Thanks. 
Coffin Bond Podcast is a product from Coffin Bond & Co., which we are an authorised representative of Gown Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Coffin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.